Exodus chapter 20 at verse 17. Once again, dear friends, this is God's holy word. Take care how you hear it. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. Let's all pray. O Lord, would you send now your Holy Spirit to till the soil of our hearts, that we would not be like the rocky path or the stony ground or the thorny soil, but that our hearts might be good soil, fertile soil, So that as the seed of the word of God is scattered and sown, it would land in these hearts of ours and take deep root and would germinate and grow and blossom to yield a wonderful harvest, 30, 60, 100-fold. Grant us the ministry of your Holy Spirit tonight as we study this, your holy word. And all for Jesus' sake we do ask it. Amen. Well, friends, it's no secret that we live in the age of rampant and rapid and rabid, and I think most of us would agree, deadly consumerism. This is the age of the consumer, isn't it? Even the way we have adjusted our use of the English language reflects this shift in our mentality. It used to be that people who purchased goods and services were customers. We were guests at hotels and restaurants. Diners at restaurants, perhaps. Now we are consumers, ever on the quest for new and exciting experiences. It used to be that I was getting a meal at a restaurant, and now I'm having a dining experience. I used to be a guest at a hotel, and now I am a consumer who needs to be met with a vacation or lodging experience. It has even come to this point in academia. A well-known Christian university, Christian university, whose name you would all recognize if I said it, has come to refer to its young men and women in its official published literature, not as students, but as consumers. Consumers looking for a next stage of life expectancy, its literature says. And it is our job, says the administration, to ensure that the consumers leave satisfied. That word consumer has become something of an industry standard word. It's meant to have a benign, non-offensive connotation, I understand. But I don't know about you, but when I hear the word, I cannot help but get get certain imagery in my head. Consumers, after all, consume. To consume is to feed on in an almost frenzy-like fashion, to ingest. You you get this image, or at least I do, this image of of a gluttonous man sitting at a long dining hall in a old stone castle, an old medieval castle, and he grabs the roast turkey and he rips off the leg and he gnaws it down. And before he's finished swallowing a mouthful, he's grabbed the pork tenderloin and he's woofed down a few bites of that. And then he grabs his flagon and he takes a swig of wine and he globs of food falling out of his mouth. And then he grabs the bowl of pudding and he begins to slurp down shovelfuls of dessert in a, a, a mad rush, as if he's afraid the servants are about to whisk the food away at any moment. And then letting out an obnoxious belch, he then reaches and grabs for more, more, more. Consuming. 
Like a tidal wave consumes an ocean village or a wildfire consumes a forest. More, more, until nothing is left in its path. Our Lord Jesus in Luke 12, verse 15, right before he proceeded to give that parable of the rich fool, he warned his listeners, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. But this is not at all the attitude of our Western culture, is it? Even 20 years ago, we were already alerted to the problem. Mark Buchanan, in an article in Christianity Today, nearly a quarter century ago, wrote this. He said, I belong to the cult of the next thing. It's dangerously easy to get enlisted. It happens by default. Not by choosing the cult, but by failing to resist it. The cult of the next thing is consumerism cast in religious terms. It has its own litany of sacred words. More. You deserve it. New. Faster. Cleaner. Brighter. It has its own deep-rooted liturgy. Charge it. Instant credit. No down payment. Deferred payment. No interest for three months. It has its own preachers. Evangelists, prophets, and apostles. Namely, admin, pitchmen, and celebrity sponsors. It has, of course, its own shrines, chapels, temples, and meccas. We call them malls, superstores, club warehouses. And in our day, we might add, websites and mobile phone apps with seemingly infinite inventories. He goes on, it has its own sacraments, credit and debit cards. It has its own ecstatic experience, the spending spree. The cult of the next thing's central message proclaims, crave and spend for the kingdom of stuff is here, close quote. One Bible commentator says, why are we so tempted to belong to the cult of the next thing? It is because our hearts are full of sinful desire, close quote. God's people are called to be content, aren't we? The Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, we read it a few minutes ago, he's describing his own attitude, but he's also commending that same attitude to his readers as something which ought to be imitated. He wrote in Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. But we're not content, are we? The situation described 25 years ago in Christianity today is no new or uniquely modern phenomenon, but rather it's the perennial problem of the sinful human heart. Rather than being satisfied with what we have, we always crave something else. Instead of being content, we covet. It's only the difference of three tiny little letters. But what a world of difference there is between content and covet. In the words of a contemporary corporate executive, advertising, at its best, is making people feel that without their product, you're a loser. One pastor put it like this, we dwell in a world where there is a constant creation of new dissatisfactions, generating the confected wants people did not know they had. We've come to believe that an internal lack can be fixed by an external means. And so we medicate our misery through buying things, close quote. In other words, in other words, excuse me, we live in a world that so desperately needs to hear the voice of God in the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. 
You see, the Tenth Commandment acknowledges the good and right relationships that exist in our world and in our society. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. A wife, a husband, a spouse, it's a good thing. But the Tenth Commandment speaks to our dreadful materialism. This, this attitude that says, unless we have more stuff, or the right kind of stuff. The mindset that, unless I have it, whatever it is, this thing, this person, this situation, this circumstance, I will never be whole or happy or satisfied. As one man said, we are trying to fix an internal lack by an external means, and the last word in the ten words, the Decalogue, tells us that such an approach will never work. Instead, the Tenth Commandment calls us and directs us to find our satisfaction elsewhere and that it will only be found in God himself and namely in his Son, the Lord Jesus. And so, following the general pattern of the Westminster Larger Catechism in its wonderful exposition of the Ten Commandments, let's study this Tenth Commandment once again under two points. First negative, then positive. Or if you will, sins forbidden and duties required. The first point, sinful coveting. And then secondly, godly contentment. So first, sinful coveting. What does it mean to covet? Well, to covet is to crave, to yearn for, to hanker after something that belongs to someone else. We covet whenever we set our hearts on anything that is not rightfully ours. The late professor John Mackay calls coveting a consuming desire to possess in a wrong way something belonging to another. You see, it's, it's not simply wanting something we don't have. It's wanting something that someone else does have. It's a sin of desire. The duties and implications of the Tenth Commandment are deeply connected to those of the Eighth Commandment, and we'll discuss that in a bit. But they are distinct commandments for a reason. Coveting the Puritan Thomas Watson defined as an insatiable desire of getting the world. An insatiable desire of getting the world. Or Dr. John Currid has described it as an inordinate, ungoverned, selfish desire for something. Now, a few caveats here. Desire in and of itself is not inherently sinful, not necessarily. So many of the Ten Commandments have to do with prohibitions against sins where we take a good thing, a good desire, and we, we warp it and pervert it and twist it into a wicked thing. Worshiping God is good, but in our sin, we pervert it into idolatry. And so, along comes the Second Commandment. Marriage is good, but in our sin, we pervert it into adultery or other sexual sins. And so, the Seventh Commandment comes along. God made us to be creatures of desire. Our desire for food reminds us to eat, for example. Our desire to do something useful moves us to labor. God instituted labor before the fall, work. Labor is good. Our desire for friendship draws us into community. Our desire for intimacy, including deepest physical intimacy and companionship, it drives us to get married. Marriage was instituted before the fall. It's good. We are finite. We are not infinite creatures. We labor and spend our energy, and we need rest. And so rest and Sabbath were instituted by God before the fall. It's good. 
We have many healthy desires. But like everything else about us, our desires are corrupted by sin. So many times we want the wrong thing, or maybe even a good thing, but we want it in the wrong way, at the wrong time, and for the wrong reason. And so the Tenth Commandment comes along. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism, number 81, says, The Tenth Commandment forbiddeth all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor, and all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. One of the interesting things about the Tenth Commandment is how it goes right after the human heart and its prohibitions, bypassing external actions altogether. Did you notice that? This is part of what makes it distinct from the other nine commandments. Now, all of the Ten Commandments speak to issues of the heart, as we've seen over these ten weeks together studying them. Issues of the core of the human soul. It's the, each commandment speaks to motives and thoughts and desires and so forth. Yes, of course, those are legitimate applications and explications from the commandments, as, as we've seen. But all the other nine commandments, at the surface... In, in the plain written words of Exodus chapter 20, they begin with external actions, with things of behavior, issues of speech, don't say this, issues of action, don't do this, don't make graven images, don't steal, don't lie, don't murder, or it commands the doing of actions. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, do these things. As I said, issues of speech, don't say this, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And of course, we get to the hard issues and the motivations lying behind and underneath all of those things. That the, the, we, we consider the disposition that our soul ought to have when we study and meditate deeply upon the Ten Commandments as we should. But do notice that the Tenth Commandment starts not with doing an action right away, but with immediately addressing the attitude, with the disposition of the heart itself. It doesn't talk about stealing. That's already been addressed. It's talking about inordinate desire. The Tenth Commandment goes immediately to our consciences and cuts right to our hearts. The Tenth Commandment is like a scan of the soul, a spiritual MRI or CAT scan, as one man put it. We've noted before that of the things that I, I hope you've seen as we've studied through the Ten Commandments is that all sin is interconnected. Right? It's all interwoven. Rarely is it the case where we are breaking a command and that's the only one that's being violated in our sin. They're all connected. There's a sense in which all sin is idolatry. All, all sin is a lie or believing a lie. Or we might say all sin is a blasphemy against the God of holiness and goodness and truth. And, and really, standing behind all sin, we might argue, is covetousness. Because it is an unlawful desire against God's instructions. Because there's something that I want... And I'm not entitled to have it. I want his wife or that man who's not my husband. Seventh commandment, violation. But the tenth commandment stands behind it. I want that money. I, I want that item. It's not mine to have lawfully, but I want it. So I take it. Eighth commandment. But the tenth commandment stands behind it. That man deserves punishment. But I'm not satisfied with how God seems to be handling it, the, the slowness of his justice. So I'll take matters into my own hands. I want to be the dispenser of justice. Sixth commandment. 
But really, the Tenth Commandment stands in back of it. I don't like that person. He has far too cushy a station in life. I want it. Or at the very least, I want for him to not have it. One good rumor. One well-placed lie should be able to take care of his reputation. I want to be the one who controls this man's reputation in the wider community. I want to be the one who controls how he is received. I want to control his estate. Ninth commandment. But really, the tenth commandment stands behind it. You may remember way back when, when we studied the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. We noted that famous quote from the church father, Origen. What each one honors before all else, what before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. That's what Origen said. So what is that thing? What is that arrangement? What is that life situation without which you say, I cannot be content. I will not be satisfied unless I have this. Such is your God. Whatever answer you give, if it is not the God of the scriptures, it is idolatry. And it is covetousness. Why? Because it is discontentment with your station and desiring that which is not yours, dear friends. Imagining that if you had that thing, that item, that person, that situation, imagining that whatever it is, it would better facilitate your happiness. God hasn't given it to you, but you want it just the same. Commandment 1 and Commandment 10 really are bookends, really mirror images of a sort, bookending the whole of the Decalogue, the whole of the Ten Commandments. And really, this is the opinion of the Apostle Paul as well. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, he says that the love of money covetousness, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. All kinds of evil. All sorts of sin flows out of a covetous heart. As well, both Ephesians 5 verse 5 and Colossians 3 verse 5, they both call covetousness idolatry. Let me read them for you. Ephesians 5 verse 5, Paul says, or you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous that is, an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Or Colossians 3, verse 5. Let me read it for you. To death, put to death, Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And there's plenty of other examples all over the scripture. When we studied the Eighth Commandment just a few weeks ago, we noted Amos chapter 8, where God condemns people who grow impatient with the Sabbath because it's, remember, getting in the way of their money-making racket. Amos 8. When will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. It's a Tenth Commandment violation, but it's fueling a disdain for the Fourth Commandment there, you see? All interconnected. One commentator pointed out Luke 15, the famous parable of the prodigal son. Remember? The son asks for his inheritance from his father right now. I could stay around here and live my life and wait for my inheritance, Dad, but I'd rather you were dead and gone so that I could have your money now. Now. Fifth commandment violation, but what stands behind it? Covetousness. James 4, verse 2. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. 
You covet and you do not obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Covetousness fueling the breaking of the sixth commandment. And we could go on and on and on, noting more biblical examples of coveting and that tenth commandment violation, how it stands under and behind so many other sins and transgressions in the Bible and in our own lives. James 1, verses 14 and 15, it explains, he explains how that happens. James says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Each person is lured away by his own desire, by his own covetousness, James says. And then desire, covetousness, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is all grown up, when it's fully mature and full-sized, brings forth death. It's the same old problem and it's the same old playbook that was used against our first parents in Eden. I wonder if you picked up on that as we've been thinking about it. Remember Eve saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and desirable for making one wise. I must have it. Now remember, God's given them paradise. He's given them perfection, bliss, liberty, and communion with himself to use the language of our larger catechism. God had given them everything. What more could they possibly want? And still, they wanted more. And then Satan darkly implied, remember, that God's word was overly restrictive. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Oh, oh, any, any but that one. Well, why not that one? God won't let you eat from that one? Why not? Seems petty of him. Seems overly restrictive. Why why is God denying you this good thing? Isn't that mean of God? He's only given you this when he could be giving you more. It's a powerful temptation. A darkly powerful temptation. Many of you know this, and I'm often reminded that it's true throughout humanity. We, We see it all the time, don't we? Even those that we suppose must be content. Surely they must be content. Millionaires and billionaires and oligarchs. Actually, many of us know very well that the more we have, the more we want. And yet we never seem to have enough. Aren't we tempted to begrudge God or resent him for failing to provide for us by our ever-fluctuating metric of satisfaction? More, more, more. It's not enough, God. And if only I had this, then I would be satisfied. If only, if only, if only. Such a mindset is utterly bankrupt. And it is a surefire path to despair, both in this life and the life to come. That's the first thing we need to see. Sinful coveting. But then secondly, let's think about godly contentment. Godly contentment. All along, we've been noticing the, or noting the helpful pattern in the larger catechism in its exposition of the Ten Commandments. It helps us understand in each command that there are both sins forbidden and, and duties required. So after thinking about those sins forbidden, what should we be doing? What are our commanded duties? If we're not supposed to covet, if we're not supposed to have an inordinate sinful desire, then what should we do? Well, we are being called, as one man put it, to find true contentment and genuine satisfaction of the soul. I have 
long-loved 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, and I almost used it as the title for tonight's sermon. 1 Timothy 6, 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. In the 10th commandment, we are being called to godly contentment. Larger Catechism, number 147, tells us the duties required in the 10th commandment are this. A full contentment with our own condition and such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor so that all our inward motions and affections touching him tend unto and further all that good which is his. Recall in that passage in 1 Timothy 6, the Apostle Paul warns Timothy, his young protege, about those who imagine that godliness is a means of gain. I can use godliness to get more money, to, to leverage wealth. You think the prosperity gospel is some new development? False teachers peddling a false gospel with false promises in order to simply line their pockets with a sickening amount of ill-gotten wealth, often coming at the expense of some of the most destitute people? That's nothing new. It was happening in Paul's day. Some people suppose they can get rich from religion. And Paul is warning Timothy about them. But, Paul says, Timothy, the truth is, even though people think they can leverage religion as a scheme to get rich, the truth is, godliness with contentment is itself great gain. People are thinking about gain in all the wrong ways. Do you hear that? It's not just net neutral godliness. It's not just, well, godliness is fine, it's, it's not evil. It's not sinning. No. Godliness is a net positive. Godliness is a state in which you are more profitable than when you once were. It's riches. Godliness is riches, and these are the kinds of riches that we should be seeking after and investing in and stewarding and cultivating, Paul says to young Timothy, and to us as well. Why? Because here are the riches that will never fail. God will always satisfy. Do you believe that? God will always satisfy. What is the flip side? What's the opposite of you shall not covet? It is this. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We alluded to Philippians 4, verse 11 earlier. Paul says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What's the secret? I have learned how to be content. How? Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then down at verse 19 of Philippians 4. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We noted Luke 12 earlier. Our Lord Jesus said, For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You won't get satisfaction there. But you will get it according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, verse 19. Christ Jesus is the treasure that will satisfy. Matthew 6, verses 19 and following. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be. Your heart will naturally, reactively incline to the place where your treasures are stored, friends. You'll think about it. You'll hearken to it. You'll muse about it all the time. And Jesus is saying, make sure you have the right treasure in the right place so that you're always thinking on that. Paul and Jesus are really saying much the same as David in Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. This is the heart of biblical religion and biblical piety. The most famous question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism says it so well. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to, what? Enjoy the stuff that he gives us? Well, there are benefits to enjoy from Christ's hand, to be sure, yes. But ultimately, we are made to enjoy him forever. Psalm 73, verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We are if I can borrow another man's analogy, always going thirsty, going over and over to the well which keeps running dry and will never quench our thirst. Worse than that, it's as if we're drinking salt water. More money, more prestige, more comforts and luxuries, more sex and food and drink, more notoriety, and it will do nothing. It will only exacerbate the problem and make us thirstier than when we began. Oh, but there's good news. Oh, there's good news. Isaiah 55. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Come to Jesus Christ and buy. There is a fount of living water, brothers and sisters, and if you would come and drink there, you will never thirst again. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 4, speaking to the woman at the well, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, there's the antidote, brothers and sisters, for your discontented hearts and mine. The only cure for our coveting, thinking that we can glut ourselves on the world's baubles, only to find that ever and again we always come away hungry. The antidote is Christ the treasure hidden in the field, the pearl of great price, the the treasure hidden in the field so that the man, upon discovering it, he sold all that he had so that he might go and buy that field and have that treasure. The only treasure and source of satisfaction that will never disappoint. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, the things you need for the living of this life, they will all be added unto you. Christian, he's given you his costliest treasure, his own son, How shall he who did not spare his own son, 
but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So look to Christ, won't you? Get Christ. Drink from that fountain that shall never leave you thirsty again, and there you will find satisfaction, true contentment for all your days. And we might be a people who can truly say, God is the strength of my heart, and he is my portion forever. Let's glorify and enjoy Christ forever. Praise God for the ministry of the Tenth Commandment to us tonight. Let's pray. Lord, truly, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.